Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello. Welcome to HealthScape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today's topic is trauma and its effects on mental health and chronic pain. Trauma, especially severe and early childhood trauma, is probably way more common than we suspect, casting a seemingly endless shadow of dysfunction, pain, and heartache while untreated. It inflames both the mind and emotions, often leading to social withdrawal, among other issues that can thwart potentially life-fulfilling experiences. While treatments are effective and safe, lack of access and the fact that many with trauma remain undiagnosed are still major problems. And worse, some even with the diagnosis may never be offered appropriate treatment. My guest today is Dr. Robert Tangay. He's a psychiatrist who has completed two fellowships, one in addictions medicine and one in pain medicine. He is also clinical assistant professor at the University of Calgary, Departments of Psychiatry and Surgery. He's president of the Pain Society of Alberta and provincial medical lead, opioid dependency training, and Alberta addictions education sessions. He is a member of the Hotchkiss Brain Institute and Matheson Center for Mental Health. Hello, Rob. Welcome to HealthScape. Good to have you here with us. Thanks, Trevor. Thank you. Uh, so I, I, I do have to clarify, I'm the past president of the Pain Society of Alberta, uh, and um, I, I no longer run the adult addiction services. I did that for about or the, the adult education uh, program for addiction. Uh, I did that for three years, so okay. uh, must have sent you an old bio. My apologies. Okay, no problem. So, Rob, over the last few years, we have seen an enormous increase in awareness, in my view, and an emphasis on trauma. And this has reached us on many fronts in our professional training, uh, the general media, TV, the lay press, self-help books. What, what do you think has led to this? As a family physician, you know, the questions we often ask, as you know, is why now? which is often a good question to ask in any situation. Has it been further insights from psychiatric research, accumulation of data, or the fact that we currently seem to have more effective treatments? Yeah, those are good questions. I, I, think, uh, I think it comes down to when, when we think about trauma. I think the first thing, a lot of people, when they think trauma, they start to think about car accidents or uh, broken legs or stuff. When we're talking about trauma, we're talking about kind of mental health and, and traumas that, that uh, are events that happen to us that we struggle to get over or that have long-term and lingering effects on us. Um, and, and I think that although PTSD has been around for a long time, there's not a lot of education or training in medical school, in residencies, uh, even in psychiatry. And so... 
you know, because there's not a lot of training, unless you kind of work in areas such as uh, return to work or disability management, uh, or you're working in areas uh, that are specialized, uh, such as with veterans, uh, you, you or or with Canadian Armed Forces or other armed forces, uh, uh, you, you're not really going to be too knowledgeable on the topic. And yeah. so... I think the adverse childhood experiences kind of open some people's eyes, but we're still probably at the infancy. Right. But so we, we do we have any kind of estimation of, well, I guess we've got no reliable figures, but any kind of feeling of what percentage this childhood trauma runs at? Yeah, so we, we do. It's it's estimated approximately one in six people have more than four adverse childhood experiences, which puts them at significant risk uh, of having uh, health, mental health, addiction, uh, negative outcomes, and in fact, even shortening uh, shortening lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know that was. Um, kind of some accidental findings that have now been replicated several times. Uh, so it happens to a lot of us and probably about uh, one in six, uh, sorry, about one in three of us have, have had at least one adverse childhood experience. Right. Because it's a perceived uh, experience, right? Uh, that's important. Uh, it doesn't have to be, I mean, we. my understanding is that it's how the person perceives it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and for a long time, um, that was that was kind of what we focused on um, was the the perception and how that affected us. In fact, the DSM four that was the diagnostic criteria. The DSM five has shifted PTSD that it must be some sort of severe life threatening event, uh, but. That, that doesn't change our, our perception and, and what happens to us. Yeah. Uh, so when we look at, you know, uh, and, and I'm sorry, it's about two in three people have, have experienced at least one. Uh, the one in six is, is much more. But those adverse childhood experiences, that they can be very specific as to what those, those experiences are. And they've been studied uh, as ACEs. The, the original ACEs was you know, being sexually abused as a child, uh, witnessing violence uh, in your home, being uh, physically abused, being emotionally abused, uh, being neglected either physically Mm. or emotionally, and uh, witnessing drug or alcohol use or somebody being arrested and incarcerated in the family. Um, These are what we call adverse childhood experiences. My argument is those aren't experiences, those are traumas. You know, being raped by your uncle Jimmy when you're a child isn't an experience. Uh, that is a trauma. Right. And that, that is the problem is we don't look at it as trauma. So often we're not treating them as traumas. Yeah. Yeah. It's not realistic, right? Sure. So, so that's obviously a lot of pathology in the community. And when we look at who gets treatment, you know, it's it's not, it was inadequate, obviously. Um, we know as well that occupational trauma, first responders, firemen, police, and so forth, that uh, there's an increased awareness. Now I'm talking about the last 20 years that it's additive 
in terms of disability as well, that, um, you, you know, you see so many car accidents and then one evening you, you just see one and you know you're not coming back to work for a while. You, you can't do it anymore. I've had patients of my own who say that they, it wasn't even a bad accident, but they just knew they've got to stop doing this for a while. Uh, so we've got quite a, a lot of workers in the community that face this as well. Um, in your experience, is the early childhood, because it's more buried or layered or covered, if you like, more difficult to deal with, or does it not matter? Trauma is trauma. Yeah, it's it, it, it's hard to know. I mean, the, the data does show us that people who uh, have adverse childhood experiences that lead to something called complex PTSD uh, are uh, treatable with uh, trauma-focused therapies. Um, and you know, the, the effects of these, uh, adverse childhood experiences, I mean, they're, they're pretty profound, right? Like, uh, three times increased levels of lung disease and smoking 14 times increase. And we're talking times, not, not percentage, 14 times increase in the number of suicide attempts, uh, 4.5 times more likely to get depressed two times more likely to have liver disease, 11 times more likely to be an IV drug user. Uh, you know, the, the effects are, are remarkable. Uh, and, you know, when, when we look at treatment, uh, often it's, it's not done in childhood. And so now you have an adult who uh, is struggling and looking to get treated. Uh, most people aren't even looking at how to treat when in reality, if you have these traumas and they're affecting you today, uh, treating them with, with trauma-focused therapy does have a positive effect and can reduce the, the effect of the mental health and hence the behaviors that come with it, hence reducing uh, addiction, reducing uh, physical diseases, and reducing mental health disorders uh, by getting to the root cause of it, which is often those traumas or uh, adverse childhood experiences. Right. And I suspect the, um, the, the consequences of these early childhood trauma are themselves multifactorial, like immune problems, behavioral disorders, um, you know, taking on more risk and so yes. forth. Um, it, breeds, it, it breeds more. Um, you know, this is something I thought about quite a, a, a bit. It's the way I think. Uh, we've heard so much also recently about the role of inflammation. I remember from med school, we had about the first eight pathology lectures were just on inflammation, you know, the chemistry and the cells going and migrating and so forth, having such a central role in the discipline of pathology. Mm -hmm. But uh, now pathology comes up, especially at integrative conferences where everything's you've got to reduce inflammation through your diet and through various uh, uh, other other entry portals. And, um, and I, you know, it seems so much the, the instigator or the, the genesis of disease physically is, is trauma sort of, is it, a, is it a stretch to say that it's, it's the it's inflammation of the mind. 
or is that fanciful? I, I know I I think like it. It may it may not be rooted in in you know um, in the research, and that's why I ask. Yeah, no, it's it's a good question. So um, when we look at, at PTSD and cortisol levels, for instance, um, you know the the reality is is that uh, PTSD has a significant effect on cortisol levels, uh, and uh, you know cortisol levels. You have your kind of your your baseline cortisol level, uh, which is uh, affected by PTSD. Um, and, and it's led to low cortisol levels, which, you know, sometimes don't make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but the reality is, is that you also have higher spike levels when triggered. So you're, you're literally your circadian rhythms are out of control. Your ability to cope with stress is out of control. Um, you know, we know that cortisol levels show a variation during the day, but they're, they're, the adaptive aspects of the cortisol levels, which directly relate to both inflammation and stress, uh, are significantly affected in those who are struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder or other terminologies such as traumatic psychological injuries or occupational stress injuries. Uh, these OSIs or TPIs or PTSD or, or uh, now what we like to talk about is childhood traumas. Um, you know, these actually have significant effect on our cortisol levels and significant effect on how we deal with inflammation. Uh, and so we know that uh, a lot of mental health disorders are interlinked with neuroinflammation and that that neuroinflammation uh, is seen in depression and trauma. So, you know, without going into the concept of the mind and if we just focus on the brain, the right. brain and physical body are affected by trauma and PTSD, uh, as well as childhood trauma. Right, right. Interesting. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, it, and it's sometimes forgotten. You know, there's, there's a lot of people that like to separate uh, the, the mind and mental health from the body. Well, that's like, uh, assuming that the brain or the mind is some symbiote, uh, parasitic relationship with the yeah. body. The body is nothing more than uh, a mode of getting the brain transferred around. Uh, we are nothing more than our brain. Uh, and everything that we do affects how the brain functions. Uh, and the things that happen to us affect the brain itself, which then affects the body. Hence why we see such difficulties in chronic pain uh, and those individuals struggling with mental health. Yeah, we, we often hear these conferences, the mind-body connection, and it's more of a mind-body continuum because they're actually uh, inseparable. Yeah, so. I, I agree. In fact, they're one and the same. Uh, you don't have, um, you know, you don't have a body without a brain. Uh, and, you know, the brain needs a body uh, in order to transport and to pro, um, to do really everything, everything. Right. Rob, um, could you discuss some of the newer effective treatments for trauma? I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the psychedelics. 
Yeah, so when when we look at psychedelics, um, there's some nice evidence coming out of MAPS and the, the phase three clinical trial uh, looking at um, MDMA um, uh, and uh, a form of, of therapy that comes with the MDMA uh, and PTSD. Uh, now, MDMA or, or methylene dioxy methamphetamine uh, which is commonly known as a street drug of ecstasy or molly, uh, is a psychoactive drug um, that was used for a long time recreationally. Uh, now we're seeing it used much more in the, the mental health and, and medical uh, fields. Um, how does it work? Well, it, it kind of allows you to um, have a bit of this ego dissociation or separating yourself, literally what we were talking about, separating your mind from your body and being able to see what's been happening for you. Uh, so it allows what we like to call it is more of a, a catalyst to therapy. But make no mistake, um, MDMA as an empathogen is a, is a nice molecule, but you know, all those people that took Molly at the club or were using E uh, to party didn't suddenly have a cure, curative format of their mental health. It oh. is a, an adjunct to the therapy. Right. Uh, and we're seeing this with ketamine as well, uh, which is a dissociative anesthetic that has psychedelic properties. Uh, and psilocybin. Uh, the Yale protocol for psilocybin includes acceptance commitment therapy. Uh, we have to, to connect it with the therapy. So what we're seeing at the Newly Institute is um, ketamine has been a driver uh, to uh, improving the outcomes of evidence-based trauma therapy. So uh, EMDR, eye movement, um, uh, uh, desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR, uh, or a cognitive processing therapy, or even prolonged exposure, uh, by adding the ketamine into it, you're you're really stabilizing some of that um, that hyper fight and flight uh, aspect of your your nervous system. You're calming that down. You're immediately uh, taking away intrusive thoughts. You're immediately treating the depression and allowing people to process during their trauma therapy. So we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, over 90% clinical response to evidence-based trauma therapy by adding in ketamine-assisted treatment. And that's the key, it's assisted. It's ketamine-assisted trauma therapy. Um, so the molecules are fascinating, but the answer is in the therapeutic process. Yeah, that's very interesting because I, I recall, well, I don't know how to date this is, but, you know, um, the, uh, uh, the EDM, uh, the EMDR, I always yes. um, you know, the study showed more of sort of mild to moderate effect. I think it was mostly at, at, at most moderate. So it's very interesting that the molecules can push this up uh, to that level. You know, that's that. I mean, often, so often it's a multifactorial condition. It's going to probably take a multifactorial treatment, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then you, you've got to transition out of the, the belief that you got to prepare someone for trauma therapy and you got to we meet with them weekly for months at a time. And then you start doing weekly 
treatment for months at a time and, you know, years go by and you start feeling better. The data clearly shows that we can ramp this up. There's there's studies doing two EMDR sessions a day for three weeks and, and seeing people completely resolve their PTSD. We've got to change the way we do things. Um, yes. And unfortunately, you know, in, in Canada specifically, but, uh, you know, this is true around the world. We're not really always working in, in healthcare. Uh, we're working in healthcare administration systems where right. the administrator determines what happens and we're stuck to our schedule. So if I wanted to see someone twice a week for three weeks, my schedule would say absolutely not. Right. Uh, and so we get stuck in these long processes. And the longer somebody's away from work, the less chance they will ever return back to work. So we have to flip the system on its head and, and do things absolutely differently. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, when CBT was started supplanting psychotherapy, it was just too lengthy or in-depth psychotherapy. Because it went on and on for years, and and at least the CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy was was fixed in the here and now, and and sort of goal det- determined by goals and and what currently is. Rob, there's just one other uh, a point that emerged from what you what you were saying last was um, you talk about the dissociation. So the um, the 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 ability to be the observer in one's own pathology type type of situation is very much like what transpersonal psychologists try to do as always observing and that's that initial step away is, is that analogous or is that something completely different yeah i think i think so what you were talking about is is a nice way of looking at it so for many years we took a psychoanalytic approach to mental health and, and Freud had some things right, you know, yeah, uh, our yeah. childhood affects who we are today. And that's what he talked about. Now, uh, he blamed the mum and used too much cocaine himself. And <laughs> so he was he was wrong on some ideas. Yeah. Uh, but the one thing that that the psychedelics do, and, and this is often what we talk about is when you combine it with CBT like therapies, uh, it's almost like every every session that you do with a psychedelic is like a year or longer of doing psychodynamic therapy. And what you're doing is you're building insight into mm-hmm. why I behave and act the way I behave and act. Whereas CBT tells you the way you act and behave will affect your environment, will affect your mood, will affect the way you act and behave, will affect your environment you know, that tri- triangle that continues yeah. to happen, but it doesn't really go too deeply into why am I this way? Now, the third wave of CBT, we're seeing more and more of that with, with things like acceptance commitment therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy and uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, uh, especially with ACT, uh, acceptance commitment therapy, where we're starting to spend a bit more time on the why, uh, the psychedelics, I mean, they really ramp up the why. And, and what we're seeing is, you know, people within a couple of weeks uh, who have been ill for months or years suddenly have all the insight as to why and start responding incredibly well to the, the trauma therapies. Uh, it's remarkable, honestly, but that's truly what it is, 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 you're building the insight, uh, which is what psychodynamic therapy is, is insight-orientated therapy. You're building that insight 
in order to change the way you see and do things. Uh, but we're doing it at a rapid pace, which is incredible. Yeah, you, well, you can also see the value of acceptance commitment therapy in, in a condition where there's traditionally been a lot of denial. Oh, yes. And, and when, when you bring in meaning, the why, uh, you know, then the, then the how becomes a lot more, maybe not obvious, but more accessible from the patient's point of view. I mean, um, it becomes more obvious from these from the, the therapist's point of view, but I just feel they get the feeling I can do this because I've actually seen that in pain using acceptance and, 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 um, and uh, meaning as a foundation, meaning acceptance and then expectation. Oh, yes. Worked very well in, in well, I, I thought it worked very well in those situations. Oh, I'm a, I'm a big believer in ACT. Uh, everything that, that I've been running in medical clinics, both for the public system and now with the newly, ACT is a major part of it. And you have to accept that something is wrong in order to fix it. You have to accept the door is is closed in order to open it. You you have to to have that level of acceptance. And you know what what act is really good at is is removing the the butts and adding the ends. So um I'd love to do that, but I'm in pain. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to do that and it may increase some of my pain, but man, am I gonna have uh, a massive amount of enjoyment which is going to improve quality of life. Um yeah. yeah. Act is also great at breaking down the injustice and the the uh, moral injuries that often occur with workplace related traumas, yes. Uh, yes. and that's important in order for people to move forward in their trauma therapy. Right. Yeah, I, I, that's uh, that's true, especially where they've been wrongfully hurt by someone who was impaired at work and so forth. It's hard to move beyond that, I think, without act or without some intensive CBT, certainly. Um, we're going to take a short break. Uh, this is your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell on Healthscape, speaking with Dr. Robert Tangay. Um, we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Are you looking for a path to better health rather than just avoiding disease? A good deal depends on your environment and overall behaviors. On Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell, we focus on the daily techniques that can help with chronic pain, addiction, trauma, and disease. You can take a more active approach to taking control of your health and your life. Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell can be heard every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. Uh, Rob, the other thing about psychedelics, and I, it's uh, it's something that I, I often wonder about because uh, I missed the 60s. I mean, I wasn't old enough to appreciate the 60s, but I, I had cousins who did. And... Um, I'm wondering whether that um, the engagement we see from the public that are certainly fascinated, I'm not suggesting they're rushing for treatment, but um, because of its earlier history as part of the 60s mantra, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out, 
Do you feel that this is any kind of issue, either helpful or more of a barrier, in your opinion? Yeah, probably uh, more of a barrier than anything. I think there's a, there's a level of stigma that oh, that's an illicit drug. We don't do that. Okay. You know, in unlike cannabis, uh, you know, look, cannabis uh, became legal in Canada because of activism, not because of evidence. Uh, and quite simply, we had a lot of veterans um, who couldn't access good therapy or didn't respond uh, to the therapy they were provided. And cannabis was the only thing that kind of kept them glued together. So cannabis really showed up in Canada uh, as a legal substance due to activism, due to a lack of access to treatment. Um, the psychedelics are showing up uh, because of data, because right. of outcomes. So I, I think that should help with some of the stigma on it. The, mm -hmm. the other part... Um, it's not the substance alone. Look, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. A lot of people have had mushrooms, which are psilocybin or ecstasy, which is MDMA, mm -hmm. and weren't magically cured of their mental health. It is just a piece of it. And there's, you know, we're in an epidemic of, of untreated mental health out there that is causing significant uh, physical uh, disabilities on top of it. And yep. we've got to figure out how to help uh, a massive amount of people without just seeing a therapist for the rest of their life. Right, right. Yeah, which is slow and inordinately expensive. And, and, and people drop out because it's logistically too difficult. You know, I've had patients who just couldn't handle it anymore from that perspective. Uh, and it's also not funded, right? It's mostly psychotherapy. Yeah, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, that's correct. It's not funded. Uh, it's also illegal. <laughs> and so, you know, there, there's, I guess, Oregon is maybe a place where they've decriminalized drugs. And, and I think the psychedelics are looked upon as, as a, a possible treatment uh, outside of, of ketamine. Now, ketamine itself is a dissociative anesthetic and is a, a medicine that has been used for a long time. Do some people abuse it? Uh, yes. Um, but uh, it's not commonly used in, in, um, in most uh, uh, party scenes or drug scenes. Uh, we do see it sometimes used with people who are struggling with meth as a way to, uh, you know, they go on a meth binge and they, they turn everything down after four or five days to go to sleep. Uh, but you don't see a lot of it out there. Uh, and its risk of addiction is extremely low. So we, we see less pushback on the ketamine side. I assume partly because it's legal, it's got a DIN number and it can be prescribed. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, I, I think we're going to see the shift and it's going to happen fairly rapidly. And uh, what we do find is a lot of acceptability from psychiatrists. And, and that's a big key to this. Right, right. Could you tell us a little bit, I meant to ask earlier about generational trauma. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot about that. And um, if you could just speak to that subject, please. Yeah, you know, I think that when we think of intergenerational trauma, uh, certainly in North America, we think of our, our indigenous populations who underwent genocide and, and uh, as a culture managed to survive. Um, and but with a lot of those abilities to learn how to raise children and to raise a family were removed by throwing uh, children into residential schools where they were abused 
uh, even even died. Um, and you know, there there's there's so much trauma there that uh, people resort to turning to drugs or alcohol as a way of turning off the intrusive thoughts, turning off the nightmares, turning off the panic attacks, the flashbacks, uh, the triggers, the hyper uh, vigilance. All of that is turned off with substances. So quite simply, people are using whatever substance they can to, um, to treat their own mental health, which again goes back to that lack of access and, and lack of appropriate skill sets by people uh, who would, should be treating this. That gets passed down to a child who grows up in that environment, those adverse childhood experiences we talked about, and that gets passed down to the next one and the next one. So this happens uh, outside of, of uh, indigenous populations. Um, you know, we see uh, the father who um, physically abused his children. Often that child will grow up to physically abuse the next one. Uh, a child who is sexually molested often grows up to be an adult who sexually molests. Uh, right. these, these patterns or intergenerational traumas, um, again, they're treatable. And the sad part is, is they look at these childhood uh, issues and they, so many programs look at this as Pandora's box. We're not going to open this. And we should be doing the opposite. This is what's going to prevent someone from going off of work again, from becoming depressed again, from uh, becoming anxious again, from having panic attacks again. And yet we don't want to go near it. Yeah. Pandora's box also is an abscess. Everyone needs to be reminded as well, right? Uh, won't heal on its own. It won't. So it has, and it's painful to incise, but I mean, relief comes fairly rapidly as well, we know. But it is, it's tough. And I think when, when things happen over time, we layer it so much. I, I remember patients who were very scared of certain tests they didn't want it at one time in the eighties. And, um, and I, I always would explain, I would say, look, if you don't have it and you, and you suspect you may, you live under a sword of Damocles. Whereas if you, you do have it, you can do something. And if you don't have it, having had the test, you free, you know, but it's not seen that way. They want to, try and avoid the day, what they deem the day of reckoning at all costs. But you have to walk them through the possibilities before. They can be very uh, thoughtful people, sharp people, but they can still hang on to this thing. If I don't have it, I haven't got it yet. But they, they're not at peace or at ease. So that it's, it's, it's pathogenic. Yeah, I love that. Now imagine tacking something on top of that of not being able to find someone who knows how to diagnose it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so many times they're diagnosed as uh, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, other personality disorders, uh, you know, treatment resistant depression, um, ADHD, uh, mild traumatic brain injury, addiction, uh, so many other uh, diagnoses that respond to some sort of medication. Uh, but they're not uh, often diagnosed with PTSD or now the new kid on the block, complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, and many say when complex PTSD shows up, does the DSM uh, lose half of its diagnostic 
uh, or diagnoses, uh, you know, kind of possible, but you know, I, I think that we're going to see some shifts. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, that raises a very interesting point, Rob. Um, yeah. Um, I, with chronic pain, of course, we know that a lot of it affects mainly women in the, uh, in the large part. Um, it's also many of whom have suffered early trauma. So I guess my, my question, and may not have no easy answer, is do you ever get a feeling when you're treating trauma that this person, if they get injured or have a surgery, are at risk? Does it go through your mind? Um, they may be at risk for developing chronic pain, which the way I see it, let me just explain this more fully. You know, I can understand with addiction, someone is trying to stop the horror the horror show, if you like, to use an anti-Anthony Burgess expression, um, yep. clockwork orange, uh, you know, so they numb themselves or, or they suppress it in, in a way they can, right? But at some point, the other fork in the road or apparent fork in the road seems to be a chronic pain per patient will develop pain feeling out of control and related to the incident. Now, this might be a very facile or fanciful even way, but is there any way that somebody experienced like yourself, very experienced with trauma expert, um, gets a a sort of notion or is that like, well, it it doesn't happen kind of thing? No, 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 I I think it does. Look, I think probably the best knowledge we have of, of the transition from acute to chronic pain uh, mm-hmm. is looking at the surgical context. So you go into surgery, you have acute pain. Why do some people continue with persistent uh, post-surgical pain, which becomes chronic pain in that transitional world? And why do other people don't? Well, you know, enough studies have shown there's three major risk factors. One of them is mental health. One of them is uh, copious use of opioids, right. and one of them is is uh, a high uh, subject uh, belief of their pain. So I have ten out of ten pain all the time. Right. So let's let's break each of those down. Let's talk about mental health. Well, why do people get depressed? So when I sit with my residents and um, I ask them to tell me their psychological understanding of of the person that we just saw. They're supposed to go through predisposing, perpetuating uh, factors. So they go through these predisposing factors and they talk about adverse childhood experiences, paternal loss, uh, you know, these these traumas that have occurred to someone. Um, They talk about the severe bullying that they went through, a trauma. Uh, They talk about, you know, other adverse childhood experiences or other traumas. And then they come back to me and say, well, that's that's why they have depression. And then they want to do CBT and add an SSRI. And it's like, wait a minute, you just talked about all these traumas. Why didn't you talk about doing trauma therapy to deal with the traumas? And, and the, it's like this, uh, you know, sudden eye opening moment for them where they realize, holy cow, I think I see a lot of trauma. Yeah, I think you do. And, and so, you know, dealing with those traumas before surgery is an important piece. And this is what transitional pain programs are, 
are supposed to be looking at doing is treating the underlying mental health before going into surgery. The second one, opioids. So the United States consumes 50% of the world's opioids. And, you know, the approximately one in six Americans who suffer with severe mental health consume half of all the opioids in the United States. So how many people are taking opioids as a way to cope with the mental health that they're struggling with versus taking opioids to deal with the chronic pain? And even when we're working with people who are, are taking it for the pain, when you start talking about, well, when you get distressed, you tighten up, you squeeze your shoulders together, you grit your teeth. How horrible is that for chronic pain? Then we take a medication that relaxes us, calms all of that down. Are you taking that medication because you're in pain or because you became distressed, which led to the pain? So, you know, there's a whole nother piece. Then let's talk about untreated chronic pain, that high pain sensitivity, that belief I'm in 10 out of 10 pain all the time. Well, this again comes down to how we uh, um, basically cope with the pain and how we perceive it. Mm -hmm. And perception of pain is directly related to mental health. Absolutely. You know, I've said this all the time. We are our brain. Our brain interprets the pain. So, yes, the pain is in your head. But don't ever say that to someone because the pain is real. It's affecting them. And the most effective way to get to pain is often treating the underlying mental health in the first place. And we, we just actually published on how to treat pain and depression. And the answer is aggressively treat the depression. And you will immediately make a difference right. in someone's pain. Right, right. Yeah, it's a, it's a brain gets to decide what it will express as pain and how much. It's, you know, but as sure they feel it where they feel it. Exactly. And, and don't discount that. You know, I I meet neurologists all the time and like, oh, that's a functional headache. It doesn't follow a classical format. Well, you know, people aren't classical formats. No, no. Um, no. And just because uh, it doesn't meet the perfect criteria for a migraine or a cluster or a tension doesn't mean that they're not suffering from a headache. Yes. No, for sure. And our, our, our knowledge we constantly find is, is limited. I mean, the current knowledge in any field, you know, 10, 15 years time, you look back and you think, did we really do that? You know, anyway, um, I, there's an excellent book that I've just finished called The Well-Minded Garden. And it's by a British psychiatrist. And where she did details the introduction of gardening and how it's helped people in addictions treatment and in prisons open up, um, you know, having the sort of common denominator of before being pretty closed in and find meaning again and become able to relate to their work and their co-workers. And she reminds us of the fact that in the criminal justice system, a lot of these people had learning disabilities as kids. Now, what's not in the book, I guess, and what I'm just extrapolating is that um, I grew up at a time where uh, uh, kids who were not good at school, they, ta- they were often taught by humiliate- humiliation, sadly. So they'd read their essay and kind of invite, you know, critique and this, which obviously is not used today for good reason. And so you can see where a person can fall foul of society. Society is harsh. It's hostile. It's, it's, it's not got my interests at heart. And then they go sort of, well, downhill sociologically from there. 
and behaviorally. So my, my own feeling is that this higher purpose that they move to, it ha- they do it through gardening. But I think the um, work is a very um, unseductive term for patients because they think you're in the system, you just want to get them back to work. But the studies from the Ford Corporation years ago, 70s, I think, were that after, after um, six, six months, I think only 30% of people ever go back. So my, my feeling is that, um, you know, the work element is in rehabilitation. We, we have to struggle with people. Who, I, you just want to send me to work. Going back to work in an early or gradual return to work program is an essential. It's the tailpiece, but it's the essential part of the therapy. And my own feeling is if that we've seen changes with outcomes for prisoners or, or inmates in the United States. Uh, she points these studies in, that happened in New York City. One kind of wonders why um, we don't see more of this. Obviously, there are logistics issues, you know, the marshal or whoever's in charge, you know, people escaping, the things that they would worry about, which I understand. What are your feelings? Do you think enough's being done or, or is it getting better at least? Yeah, I mean, is it getting better? I'd like to believe so. I think what you're talking about is is having meaning and purpose in life. You know, yeah. um, the the Pinocchio, uh it used to be um, uh, an inpatient psychiatry uh, program, uh, an institution where it would be kind of locked down. You'd stay there for months or years. Everyone there was involved in gardening. And Pinocchio itself actually provided most of the hospital system in Alberta with fresh fruits and ve- or fresh vegetables anyways, and, and grains and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone in their infinite wisdom said, oh, we're taking advantage of these people uh, with uh, non-paid labor. And, wow. and this is a horrific thing. Anyways, the point being purpose is, is everything. And, True. you know, I often tell people disability is disabling and work is health. And, you know, we've got to help people find purpose and meaning in life. Now, there's obviously, you know, uh, toxic workplaces and there's um, there's workplaces that that uh, bullying is occurring. But a lot of the times this is perceived as well. So you become depressed, you -hmm. become more interpersonally sensitive, you start uh, you know, misinterpreting cues as negative or, or pushed against you. Uh, and that interpersonal sensitivity shifts to everyone's bullying me. So you've worked in this workplace for 10 to 15 years. You've been fine. All of a sudden you're being bullied uh, and uh, you go off of work with depression because of the bullying. Well, are you off because of the bullying or was the depression there that led to interpersonal sensitivity that led to the bullying? Um, so we've got to figure out, uh, appropriate and, and, and better ways to return back to work. We, we take people, they go off of work. They, you know, maybe get connected to a psychologist. There's no diagnosis. There's no, uh, appropriate, uh, evidence-based treatment happening. The psychologist is often doing uh, solution focused therapy with some supportive aspects which is not in any guideline for the treatment of major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, 
uh, OCD, PTSD. I mean, name a psychiatric diagnosis and you will not find solution-focused therapy. You will not find supportive therapy. Uh, you know, so what happens, the insurance company or the person themselves ends up paying for a friend for a year or two. Then they finally get an IME, a psychiatrist gets involved, and we finally get the right diagnosis. Uh, and maybe if we're lucky, we can get that person the right treatment and return to work. But, you know, the, the chances of ever returning back to that workplace after a year or two is almost zero. So we, right. we've, we've got to flip the whole disability world upside down. And that's exactly what we're doing at the newly is we start with the psychiatric assessment right away, get the right diagnosis right away and get a personalized evidence-based treatment algorithm in place immediately uh, with return to work uh, at that eight to 12 weeks. Uh, and, you know, our, our percentages are 80 to 90% of people going back to work. Uh, why? Because that's the focus. Right. Uh, is, is let's improve your quality of life. Let's dig into all the reasons that you're off of work. Let's open Pandora's box and deal with those childhood traumas. Mm -hmm. And let's help people feel good. Uh, and it's okay to feel good. Right. But I was just going to ask you about the, the, the Newly uh, Institute, which I've been following. I, I don't know a great deal about it, but it certainly, you know, has uh, delivers, I think, what it, what's called for. Uh, it's, it's innovative and it's uh, bold, if I may use the term, uh, because I think for too long we've kind of, it's, you know, uh, mental health is by nature difficult and complex, obviously, and, and, and time-consuming and expensive. But I think taking the bull by the horns, again, if I may use an expression, um, is, is probably our best route because think about the abscess analogy. You know, you get a short shock and it kind of is relief. Um, I think there's some validity in that analogy. Yeah, so very, very exciting stuff. Um, uh, Rob, where where do you hope to to go on any front uh, at the newly um, the, the 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 immediate future? It can be on trauma, it can be on addictions, addictions, or it can be on chronic pain, or all of them. Just whatever you you'd like to to share, please. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I look at the newly and, and what we've tried to create is Canada's first uh, mental health rehabilitation and disability management program uh, in the setting of a medically managed intensive outpatient program. So do we treat chronic pain? Yes, because the, the main reason most people with chronic pain are suffering and struggling is is the inability to cope and the mental health that comes with it. That doesn't mean their pain isn't real. It's absolutely real and it's horrific for some people. Right. Uh, do we treat addiction? Yes. The root of addiction in many cases is untreated mental health. Not in all, mm -hmm. uh, but in many. Uh, and then, of course, we, we treat mental health. And now we've got some great disability programs. We've got, you know, the, the physio programs that, that focus on, on pain rehabilitation and the life marks and CBIs. And we've got these great addiction programs, the, the, the woods, as they're known, the, the home woods and edge woods. But when it comes to uh, a national program that focuses on mental health, that has psychiatrists working with, uh, you know, occupational uh, therapists working with uh, kinesiologists, uh, all under kind of one roof, helping people return back to work. Well, that doesn't exist. 
And so that's our main focus is, you know, what can we do to improve uh, mental health rehabilitation and support through disability management, people getting back to work. And so we're trying to basically flip that all upside down. And we have excellent data so far, uh, as mentioned, 90% uh, uh, clinical response rate to PTSD. Um, our, our compensation is, is an over 90% return to work. Uh, our uh, disability management is also around uh, 85, 90% return to work. Uh, we're helping people who were written off by the system get well again. And uh, I think that that is really uh, the point of, of the Newly Institute. If you're, if you're suffering uh, with addiction, with mental health, with chronic pain, and you haven't been able to find the right kind of help, it's probably as much to do with the lack of knowledge of how to help it correctly as it is to, um, you know, the lack of access and, and programs out there. Uh, and the newly is, is truly going to be coast to coast to coast. Uh, it's going to be medically managed, not just a, a psychology program, but, you know, physicians and, and therapists and physio all working under one roof working together in a program where you come in uh, four to five days a week, six to eight hours a day, and intensively treat the underlying cause. You know, our, our medical system is really good at picking dandelions, stepping back and saying, man, our lawn looks good, and then complaining a week later why there's so many dandelions. <laughs> you know, we wonder, why do these patients keep coming back? Why do they keep going off of work? Why do well, nobody's treating the underlying core root of the problem. And we've got to stop picking dandelion heads and start getting to the root cause and helping people get well for good, not just good enough to return to work to get some bonus check from someone. You know, Rob, as you speak, I'm very optimistic and, uh, and, and positive about it because you, it reminds me what you're trying to do at Newly or what you are doing at Newly, I should say, is very much like um, editing. You know, whether it's a self-help book, a novel, just changing the order of things can lead you to a place that is astonishingly good. Um, I think we've had our ABC, you know, the ABC works very well in ER, airways, breathing, cardiac, right? And, and that won't change, I suspect. But for so many other things, we have to, we have to, I don't, you know, when we talk about shake, shake it up a bit, people think, assume it's reckless, but in, in effect, changing the order of the approach can be a solution in, in many ways, I believe, particularly yeah. in complex conditions. Imagine going into a merge uh, with chest pain and somebody looks at you and says, you know, here's a list of places that you can go and call and here's some medications that might help. No diagnosis, no plan, no algorithm. That is how we treat mental health and disability management. Right. Go find a psychologist uh, and ask your doctor for some meds. No diagnosis, no plan, no algorithm. Right. And we wonder why thousands, 500,000 Canadians miss work every week because of, of depression. Right. Unbelievable. And that's, that's huge. Huge uh, social cost and huge financial cost. Uh, personal cost too. Yes, billions of dollars to our society. Yeah. Well, it's certainly, 
it's exciting at the newly, I can tell. And um, I, I, from what I've heard, it's an astonishing job that's being done. So we look forward to good things. Well, thanks, Trevor. I, I really do appreciate that. And, you know, we're, we're, our clinics are full uh, and they're full for a reason. But if you're looking for help, uh, pick up the phone, uh, check us out online. Uh, and if we can't help you, we can at least connect you to someone who can. Right. And I think, that, you know, we also have to, well, of course, we, we do remember, but people who aren't mentally ill have to realize that when someone is mentally ill, they're already not in a good place to organize things and to set them up the logistics and so forth. Uh, you know, whereas when you physically ill, you have to be seriously physical ill to be in the same kind of boat from a point of organizational, the logistics and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it's particularly important, I think, in mental disease where people aren't sleeping well and, and so on. I see we're running out of time. I'm reminded, Rob, thanks so much for coming. It's been a wonderful, not enough time. Uh, we really need to get you back here sometime and I hope we manage to persuade you. Uh, it's been wonderful. Uh, it's been very necessary, timeous, um, so thank you very much again. Thank you, Trevor. A true honor to be here, and I appreciate it. Thank you. This, this is Dr. Trevor Campbell, your host, uh, signing off and um, from Healthscape. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.